In Hollywood, there are lots of flippant little film festivals focusing on careers, red carpets, fancy dresses, glitz, and the hope of a multi-million dollar studio deal. So film mavens may not feel excited about a film festival focused on uranium mining on indigenous lands around the world because, hey, aren't there better things for movies to be about? But then you watch 22 films over three days all focused on nuclear issues around the world. And over and over, you hear someone, such as this woman, whose life has been deeply harmed by uranium contamination of her only water source. And she tells you, You can't go back and clean water once it's contaminated. You can't consume it. You can't live with it. You can't even live among it. And that's what we fear, basically for our lives. Well, Is there anything more important to make a film about? Because when you hear something like that from someone whose life is on the line and realize that yours is too, you understand how important film can be in waking all of us up to the terrible seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a very special special a full-length program on the International Uranium Film Festival, which opened in Window Rock, Arizona, on November 29th and is just completing a tour of the American Southwest. We will have interviews with the festival organizers, filmmakers, excerpts from films, and a few international shockers about nuclear issues in places that you'd never expect would have them. We'll return to our regular format next week. Today is Tuesday, December 11, 2018, and here is Nuclear Hot Seat's special report on the International Uranium Film Festival in Window Rock, Arizona. On Thursday, November 29, the International Uranium Film Festival opened for three days in Window Rock, Arizona, which is the capital of the Navajo Nation. The audience was filled with filmmakers, activists, and concerned individuals from literally around the world, France, India, Denmark, Navajo Nation, Germany, Brazil, and America, all eager to learn the infuriating, heartbreaking stories of damage already done to people, land, and water, and perhaps catch some glimmers of what can be done to turn this around. I can't even begin to describe how wonderful this experience was. The people, the information, the heart, the tears, the ferocious will and kindness of the Navajo Nation's people, and the conversations, OMG. All this in an environment created by the astonishing films, each one a labor of love, conviction, heart, and caring 
filled with power, dignity, soul, and profound information. I'll do my best to give you a brief experience of it. Here's the background against which the film festival was being presented, explained by one of the organizers. My name's Susan Gordon. I'm the coordinator for the Multicultural Alliance for Safe Environment, which is a network of five groups that work on uranium legacy issues in the Grants Mining District. And we work with Anna Rondon, and she was involved in the first Uranium Film Festival that was here in Window Rock in 2013. So it had been five years, and it seemed like it was a good time to come back. There is an attempt to open a new uranium mine in New Mexico, and having a focus on that at this point is really helpful. How do you see the film festival as helping with your local issues? Well, as I said, we work on uranium legacy mining issues. So there's a lot of abandoned uranium mines, both on Navajo Nation but in New Mexico. There is a large Superfund cleanup program that's begun to address only 250 of the 1,000 uranium mines on Navajo. And so the uranium mine industry likes to keep communities sort of strung along, you know, oh, we're going to come back, uranium mining's going to happen, and people think, oh, we used to have good jobs, but it was 30 years ago. And the fact is that the uranium market internationally is glutted. There's way too much uranium out there. There's very little uranium mining happening in the United States at this point, and there's only one operating uranium mill in the country, and that's at the uh, White Mesa Mill in Utah. So there's a lot of international speculation, but the reality is it's not economically feasible to start uranium mining in New Mexico. Before things got started, I spoke with a number of people about why they were attending the festival. Note that the Diné, or Navajo people, the terms are used interchangeably, start introductions with a listing of their clan affiliations. Here's one example. Um, here at the International Uranium Film Festival happening in, in Winter Rock, Arizona, here to support the, the cause, you know, um, here where I live at, uh, we've had a lot of uh, uranium issues, and so just here to get some more information that I can share with the family back home, and like I said, just show support. My name is Targo Mesbal, and I'm here from Oakland, California. And what brought you to the International Uranium Film Festival in Window Rock? Well, I have been following online sort of the life of the film festival for a few years and was never able to make it to Brazil or Berlin. (laughs) And given my research interest, contamination from uranium mining and also contamination from the use of depleted uranium weaponry, I wanted to come here and meet the filmmakers and other activists who are working along these issues and trying to connect the various sites of contamination in different contexts. The festival opened with a blessing and prayer in the native Navajo language, an experience that marked the start of each day. We were welcomed by event organizer Anna Rondon of the New Mexico Social Justice and Equality Institute who made it clear to all that this was a uranium film festival against uranium, not for it. The president-elect of the Navajo Nation, Jonathan Nez, spoke to us about the multiple problems faced by his people, the current push for more mining, the inadequate storage of uranium tailings, inadequate attempts at cleanup, 
and the 1979 Church Rock disaster. More about this shortly. The morning session of five short films began with The Wolverine, The Fight of the James Bay Cree by Ernest Webb. It combined live action with animation on the struggles against Canadian uranium mining on the lands of the First Nation Cree people, stating clearly that the price to future generations is unacceptable. Tales of a Toxic Nation by director Lewis Berry explored the shocking fact that the Navajo Reservation has been left with over 500 abandoned uranium mines, but only nine have been so-called successfully cleaned up, and dangerous levels of radioactive toxicity have been left behind to continue to poison the land, the water, and the people. Four Stories About Water, co-directed by Deborah Beagle and David Lindblom, examines the scope of water contamination problems on Navajo lands, where the traditional view of water is as a spiritual element, that water is life. From this film, I first learned that between 8 and 10 percent of all wells on Navajo Nation contain uranium or arsenic, and 30 percent of the Navajo people do not have access to safe water. It explores in detail the July 16, 1979 Church Rock disaster, only four months after Three Mile Island. It took place 17 miles north of Gallup, New Mexico, where a uranium mill tailings disposal pond was overfilled and breached its dam, spilling over 1,000 tons of solid radioactive mill waste and 93 million gallons of acidic radioactive tailings solution into the Puerco River, with contaminants traveling 80 miles, 130 kilometers downstream the largest uranium tailing spill in U.S. history and considered by some to be a nuclear accident worse than Three Mile Island. This is a disaster that still has not been cleaned up as if it ever could be. In a brief break between films, I spoke with Jancita May Peshlakai, an Arizona state senator from District 7, which is the largest legislative district in the country. I asked her why she came to the film festival. I was born and raised here on the Navajo Nation, right near mines, and know the effects of uranium mining and uranium waste, and also as a Army veteran of the Persian Gulf War, and having traveled internationally to speak about how humankind, world, global conflict impact tiny little tribes that are trying to survive down in the Grand Canyon. These people are down to 800 members, and the U.S. government is talking about uh, starting up mining again along the Grand Canyon, South Rim, but there's been uh, a stop to that recently. But last year, I traveled to speak against any kind of conflict. We're all connected, no matter what part of the world that we live at. Conflict, war brings us together in devastating ways, such as uranium mining. And what, if any, legislation do you see or might you sponsor that would have an effect, a positive effect, on the people whose lives have been so devastated here? I think the number one way immediately is to stop any kind of transport. And jurisdictions such as federal, state, tribal, there's loopholes that always need to be closed. People can find ways around laws, and we always have to stay one step ahead of those that want to benefit 
from mining and have no qualm about killing everybody and everything that lies in their way. That was Arizona's state senator, Jane Sita May Peshlakai. Then two excellent films by director James Clifton, made for the Grand Canyon Trust with funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The first, Half-Life, the story of America's last uranium mine, explores uranium contamination from the White Mesa mine that puts at risk the White Mountain Utes tribe's water supply and way of life. It contained the profound term for the results of uranium mining, broken water. Then Too Precious to Mine, which is a gem of a film. In only 10 minutes, it deals with irresponsibly operated uranium mines located on federal public land just miles from the north and south rims of the Grand Canyon. The threat is real to the survival of the Supai tribal people and to the pristine nature of the Grand Canyon. Here is a brief excerpt from Too Precious to Mine. The springs come out at certain spots in the Grand Canyon in the geologic layers. There are a lot of questions that we have with this type of mining in this environment in particular because the hydrology is through fractured rock and the flow through fractured rock can go in many different directions. Anyone, including the mining companies who claim they know the hydrology below the mines, uh, really don't know what they're talking about. people, the Havasu Baja, it's not the first time that we've been out here gathered to protest against the uranium mining. It started back in the 80s. We learned that the water can be contaminated once they start digging for the ore and it could affect our water source that reaches our village. So that's when we started to protest against the uranium mining. When the uh, moratorium went in on mining, several mines that were in operation before the moratorium were allowed to continue. These were only a handful of mines, but some of these have had problems. Pine Nut Mine with flooding of its central chamber and now Canyon Uranium Mine. In 2016, miners at Canyon Uranium Mine hit groundwater, which flooded the central shaft. When the mine operator began pumping the water out, it became clear that the wastewater evaporation pond could not hold it all, so the company resorted to misting the water into the air. Water that comes in contact with disturbed uranium ore has the potential to carry that radioactive material to the precious groundwater aquifers that feed the seeps and springs of the Grand Canyon. Back in 1992, my research group was the very first one uh, to find high uranium in the springs below one of these uranium mines. The uranium mine was a lost orphan uranium mine and operated from about 1948 to 1970, uh, right on the rim of the Grand Canyon, about maybe a mile from the South Rim Village. There is a strong possibility that some of the uranium that reached the spring thousands of feet below the mine uh, originated from the mine works. You can't talk about uranium mining in this part of the Colorado Plateau without talking about who takes the benefit and who takes the risks. The benefit is clearly defined by those multinational mining interests who have mineral leases and right to take out. Who takes the risks? The risks are very clearly borne by those who live here. 
The moratorium on uranium mines was really important to a broad coalition of people, very different backgrounds, rural, tribal, indigenous, sportsmen who came together to understand that this is in the best interests of this region. Uh, essentially, we're gambling. We're gambling on the idea that there's no risk, when in fact that has not been shown. Mining does not drive our economy here. Access to public lands, national park system, um, our visitation, hunting, sportsmen, angling, that's what is our important economic driver here. We are right in the front lines of water contamination, which is very scary for our small tribe. You can't go back in clean water once it's contaminated. You can't consume it. You can't live with it. You can't even live among it. And that's what we fear, basically for our lives. The documentary, Too Precious to Mine. This profound and beautiful film is featured on the website of the Grand Canyon Trust, and we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 390. The film was followed by a panel discussion on uranium mining on indigenous lands. One participant was Amber Ramondo, Energy Program Director at the Grand Canyon Trust. We do a lot of work here on Navajo Nation as an organization, especially with regard to uranium mining. Uranium mining has had a significant impact on the Navajo Nation itself, and it continues to have an impact on the Navajo Nation. And there is growing impact from uranium mining and milling all across the Colorado Plateau, which is where the Grand Canyon Trust is focused on protecting. We focus heavily on trying to eliminate the negative impacts of the White Mesa Mill, however, form, whatever form that may take in the future, since that is the last remaining conventional uranium mill in the country, and all of the waste that comes from not just mining, but also any other kind of radioactive manufacturing or other waste production across the United States and even in Canada goes down to southeast Utah to the White Mesa Mill, which is only three miles north of the Ute Mountain Ute community of White Mesa. And we also do a lot of work to maintain protections around the Grand Canyon because there's a lot of misperception around the Grand Canyon already being safe since it's Grand Canyon National Park, which is absolutely not true. There's a lot of uranium around the Grand Canyon, and there's significant mining interest around the Grand Canyon. And so we are working to maintain a moratorium on mining on one million acres of public land on the north and south rims of the Grand Canyon. And what did you think of the other films you saw today? They were incredibly moving and really informational. As much as I have focused on this as a career for the last couple of years, there's always so much to learn and there's so many moving and heartbreaking stories that only make me as an activist feel more motivated to do the work that I'm doing. Audience member Percy Byron Anderson works with Conservation Voters New Mexico. He has worked extensively on Navajo tribal issues in Washington, D.C., and within the political landscape of the Navajo Nation. But he has only recently begun working specifically on uranium mining issues. How has what you've seen here at the International Uranium Film Festival informed you, and do you see it as helping you in the future? I see it helping I also see that it's not only an issue that is familiar with the Navajo people, it's a familiar issue with many communities around the planet. And it's good to see all different people from different parts of the world 
here and showing the films of how uranium has impacted their communities as well in other countries. By meeting people from around the world and using that understanding to share with the people at the local level within Navajo communities and also providing them information of how they can access that information via the internet. That's the way I'm seeing how this film festival can enhance the work that we're doing regarding uranium. Petush Gilbert, a longtime activist on uranium mining issues, had a harder evaluation of the political climate in New Mexico. The citizenry of New Mexico, led by your politicians, led by your political leadership, are addicted to nuclear monies because of the historic dependency of nuclearism in New Mexico from the construction of the atomic bomb at White Sands and the research being developed out of uh, Chicago, Manhattan, and Los Alamos National Laboratory promotes this attitude that you're making money in order to provide jobs, that you, you have become addicted to nuclear money. And the state then gets all excited when the United States of America wants to increase its nuclear capabilities by spending $3.2 trillion in the next 30 years in order to improve the nuclear capabilities of the United States, that billions will go into the two national laboratories here. And that's why no senator or representative of New Mexico is opposing that. I think it's such a sick mentality that uh, you're relying on this kind of horrible economic way of making money. Petush Gilbert. Thursday evening featured two films by Indian filmmaker Sri Prakash, who traveled from India to attend the festival in Window Rock. My name is Sri Prakash. I'm from India. Uh, near my place, there is a place called Jadugura. Jadugura is the oldest India's nuclear site. Means here, uranium mines are there, seven or eight. And I have made a film on uranium mining in India, Buddha Weeps in Jadugura. And then later I realized that Navajo Nation has more legacies than other part of the world. So I came in 2006 and then 2011. And now I'm able to make the film on that issue. And today I have screened the film. I'm just linking what is happening in India is not an isolated thing. And what is happening in Navajo Nation, that is not an isolated thing. So everywhere the marginalized communities are suffering and the people who are taking the decisions, they are the same. The governments are same, the corporates are same, politicians are same, and even media is controlled by these corporates. So this is the real problem I experienced for the last 20, 25 years working with this issue. Sri Prakash's full-length documentary, Nabikai, which means footstep or footprints, paralleled the devastation of uranium mining in India with experience on Navajo Nation's lands. It focused on the horrific health impact of mining on the Acoma, Laguna, and Diné, or Navajo Nation, and was a powerful, heartbreaking examination of how the promise of a better economy and jobs utilizing what is touted as the new improved in situ leach uranium mining methods leads poor and indigenous communities from opposite sides of the world to participate in this deadly contamination of their lands. 
Shri Prakash received the Yellow Einstein Award, the top award of the festival for lifetime accomplishment. Here's what he had to say about the festival upon receiving his award. First of all, I'm, I'm very grateful for the organizing committee and the jury who thought and review my work about all these issues. But I feel that this is needed because we are working in a such a depressing kind of situation where you can't find hope, so much death, so much sickness, and uh, nobody is listening to you. But at the same time, I feel this award gives me more responsibility to do more, go beyond my capacity. So this, this award has gave me satisfaction, but at the same time, it's giving me more load of work, more responsibility, working for the community who don't have voice. Shri Prakash. I will have a full interview with the Indian filmmaker that will be featured on a future nuclear hot seat. The program on Friday, November 30th, began with the Australian film, Nuclear Wasteland, by director Timothy Large. It focused on the Australian government's plan to build a nuclear waste dump in the foothills of South Australia's biggest mountain range, an iconic tourist attraction. It highlights the familiar tension between quick economic gain and long-term custodianship of land occupied by Aboriginal people for more than 50,000 years. Traditional landowners, with good reason, call the proposal cultural genocide. Then journey to the safest place on earth, a Swiss film which takes us on a tour of various sites proposed as permanent repositories for high-level nuclear waste. Charles McCombie, a Swiss-based nuclear physicist, accompanies director Edgar Hagen on a worldwide search for the best location for a secure, geologically stable final repository. The film examines the limitations and contradictions of this global quest through locations including Central Australia, Yucca Mountain in Nevada, a Texas site adjacent to an oil drilling location, Sweden, Switzerland, as well as protests against repositories and transport in Germany and Japan. The film was remarkable for its access to locations usually off-limits to cameras and filmmakers, and its inclusion of both nuclear power advocates and opponents who struggle for solutions. And the answer is no. A safest place has not yet been found. After Journey to the Safest Place on Earth, I spoke with Dana Eldridge, who attended the festival with her clan sister. After trying to give a measured response to my questions about the film and why she was there, what she really wanted to say broke through with undeniable directness and passion. I don't know. I'm just like sitting here. My sister and I were just discussing about how ridiculous this whole thing is, just watching this last film about how all of this nuclear waste is being created and there's no solution like whatsoever of how to dispose of it safely. Um, nobody wants it in their backyards. And, and I, I feel like what is really great about this event is that it's connecting all of these communities globally um, and indigenous communities globally. And while we don't have like any solution yet, you know, I feel like just by um, beginning this conversation and, and connecting people who are facing the same issues all around the world and who are fighting the same corporations all around the world, it gives us hope and, and it starts to lay the groundwork or the foundation for finding a real solution to this terrible problem. And, and it just really reaffirms that 
absolutely there should be no more uranium mining. Absolutely, we need to shut these nuclear facilities and power plants down because it's, it's just creating this global catastrophe. Dana Eldridge. Sometimes it's easier to understand and empathize with an issue if it is focused around animals instead of or in addition to humans. Nuclear Cattle from Japan did just that. It's an award-winning documentary by director Tamatsu Matsubara and focused on the cattle farmers of Fukushima and their radioactive livestock. Not willing to go along with the government's plan to slaughter the animals and destroy their traditional livelihoods, the farmers decided to keep their cattle alive as a symbol of resistance in the fight to rid Japan of nuclear power. At the request of festival head Norbert Suchenek, Hervé Courtois from France got up and spoke about his experiences at Fukushima. Hervé traveled from France in order to be there, and it was one of my joys to finally meet a man who has been both a friend and a resource to Nuclear Hot Seat since the show began in June of 2014. I did get to do a private one-on-one interview with Hervé, And to help fill in the picture of what it was like in Japan immediately after the Fukushima disaster began, I will share a brief excerpt from that interview. Hervé's daughter is half Japanese and was living only 30 kilometers, about 18 miles, away from Fukushima when the nuclear disaster began. As soon as he could, he traveled from France to Japan to find out how things were and what he could do to help her. It was not easy going. So when I was on location, first I was amazed how ignorant I was. Because when I arrived in Tokyo, before to go to Iwaki City on location, and I didn't know how was the situation, how was dangerous, the radiation there, etc. I went to the French embassy where they had an office which was dealing, because most of the foreigners, expats living in Japan or in Tokyo, they had all left. They all left Japan in March 11. Some came back after a few months, but most of them were, are gone. They were worrying. And the French embassy had a section to handle the nuclear situation for the French resident in Japan. And when I went there, I asked them, what's the situation there? I'm going there. And they tell me, well, we will give you iodine potassium tablet. And it was army stock, because in France you cannot buy those tablets in normal pharmacy. It's only the military, the government, who have such stock. So the woman who was in charge of that section, she gave me a tablet. I said, well, it's very nice, but how long it will protect me? Because I intend to stay one month there. So she looked at me barefaced, like I could hear her cogwheels in her brain. And then she told me, well, I'll give you two. <laughs> so actually, even the people who were in charge of the radiation situation, nuclear situation, at the French embassy, they were as ignorant as me. Hervé Courtois. I will have that full-length interview with him featured early in 2019 on Nuclear Hot Seat. We'll continue with this special coverage of the 2018 International Uranium Film Festival from Window Rock, Arizona. But first, a reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat relies on your assistance to stay in production. The financial support that you provide covers monthly tech costs, payment to the people who hold the website together, 
all manner of expenses for the regular operation of the program, as well as the support for special coverage, such as this opportunity to travel to cover the film festival in Arizona and next year's planned trip to attend the 40th anniversary of Three Mile Island in late March. Whatever you can do to assist us in continuing to operate and grow, please take a moment and go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com. There you'll find a big red donate button, which will allow you to provide a one-time donation of any size or set up a recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who wish to make a big difference on a small budget, there's also a big green donate button, which will easily let you set up a monthly donation of $5, about the same as what you would spend on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. So please, donate whatever you can by going to nuclearhotseat.com. And whatever you can do to help, know that you have my deepest gratitude. The afternoon session began with a welcoming song from Navajo singer Radmilla Cody. She followed with the festival's most powerful speech about the intersection of uranium mining, racism, corporatism, extractionist industries, and capitalism. She was followed by one of the most moving films of the festival, Yellow Fever, Uncovering the Navajo Uranium Legacy. Directed by Sophie Rosmanier, Yellow Fever follows a young Navajo military veteran, Tina Garnanez, as she investigates the history of the Navajo uranium boom, its lasting impacts on her area, and the potential new mining in her region. It begins with Tina reluctantly curious about the quality of well water used by her family and collecting a sample to be sent to a lab for testing. We follow her throughout the West as she learns about uranium mining and changes from a curious family member into an advocate, lobbyist, activist, and vocal proponent for transparency and environmental justice. We learn that none of the Diné people knew what uranium did until the 1980s, long after they'd already been exposed to deadly levels and their water polluted. 90% of the uranium mined was used to build weapons that fueled the Cold War. And Tina's concerns are current. Her family still lives on this land. If any country or region in the world is considering uranium mining, Yellow Fever provides a complete view of the issues told in very human terms. One of the biggest surprises of the festival came from two films which raised the question of uranium mining in Greenland, To Dig or Not to Dig, The Battle for Greenland, and Kvanefjeld, which is the name of a town where uranium mining is being considered. With global warming revealing deposits of uranium and rare earth in Greenland, the global rush of extractive industries to stake a claim and dig in one of the most pristine tracts of land left on earth is being held in check only by the need of this former Danish colony to hold a referendum with the people in 2019. Producer and co-director Lisa Odegina attended the festival and spoke with the audience after the screening. She started by reading a letter from a Greenland anti-nuclear activist. 
Here we are fighting so that uranium will not be extracted in this country. But it's difficult because many of our politicians think that we're going to make money from it because they're not probably informed about the consequences. I'm afraid we will lose our culture, our clean air and water as we only live six to seven kilometers from the plant mine. So we need all the help we can get in terms of information about the consequences of mining uranium at the Kvenefjell mountain so that our politicians can become more informed and able to make the right decisions. The film that you are going to see is um, a film that has been shown in an exhibition that has been traveling around Europe for the last two years. It's good to know that Greenland is a place where only 56,000 people live in a country that is so big that it goes all the way from Scandinavia down to Africa. There's hardly any roads. The town's very, very small and there's like very few roads in the town, so you can't really drive very far at all. So you basically can only get around this country with helicopters and ships. And that makes it a very difficult country to, to run when you're so few people. At the moment, because of climate change happening, uh, there's a lot of focus on the Arctic and on Greenland because of the melting ice sheet is opening up all sorts of new opportunities in the future for mining. So a lot of organizations from around the world are looking at Greenland and trying to find ways to get involved in the Arctic. So there is a lot of kind of geopolitical stuff surrounding this mine, and this mine, in a way, has become a symbol of the kind of choices that Greenland has to make for the future, which is, on one hand, a population that's desperate to become independent, create a new nation, but to do that, they will need very fast and big income, and the only way to get this income is through mining. So the big huge decisions that Greenland has to make about its future is very much this kind of choice between either thinking of very slow development, finding a very slow way of developing a new country which is not based on this big money, or get rid of Denmark and get big organizations to invest in mining in Greenland. But the big question is how is it possible for Greenland to, to control the situation and and deal with companies that have much bigger money um, just in one company than the whole country of Greenland has. So it's a very vulnerable situation right now. After watching this extremely powerful film, which consisted of people telling their own stories and no narrative intrusion, a group of us who met at this film festival are working to see if we can bring some of the films showing the long-term impact of uranium mining, Yellow Fever being one of them, to Greenland in time to perhaps influence the country to vote against allowing the irreversible devastation of their country to proceed. If you have any connections to Greenland or can help the International Uranium Film Festival get to Greenland before the vote takes place next year, send an email to me at info at nuclearhotseat.com or to Norbert Suchenek at the International Uranium Festival at info at uraniumfilmfestival.org. It is not too late yet to stop them. I have also recorded a much longer interview with filmmaker Lisa Autogena and will feature it in an upcoming Nuclear Hot Seat. 
The evening ended with The Repository by directors Daria Bachman and Anna Anderson about the proposed Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository. It included footage shot inside the so-called repository, which we learned is now just a long tunnel drilled into the side of a mountain within walking distance of a young volcano. Yet another geological reason not to cite any so-called permanent nuclear waste storage on these treaty lands of the western Shoshone people. Saturday, December 1st, featured The Return of Navajo Boy, a 2000 film that included a 15-minute update that it was added in 2011. Directed by Jeff Spitz, the film showed a traditional Navajo family living in Monument Valley, Utah, as they had for hundreds of years. They were among the families that freely demonstrated their way of life to Americans, especially tourists in the 20s and 30s. They became friends of John Ford and John Wayne, as well as extras in the classic Western films that were shot there. The first film focused on the stealing of the two-year-old John Wayne Clee from his family and how the production of this film helped reunite him with his family over 40 years later. The already established feelings for the family that we had made by watching this story made the revelations in the 15-minute update more heartbreaking. It revealed that the water this family had been using was contaminated from a nearby uranium mine. The walls of their hogan, the home where they ate, slept, cooked meals, lived their lives, had such high levels of uranium contamination that it had to be demolished. Two younger members of the family had already died of cancers. The pain of the permanent loss of their lands and way of life turned the sister we had followed from early childhood up through the years into an elderly activist, visiting Congress, doing what she can to promote cleanup of her homeland. While there was an $8 million cleanup of the nearby mine and a payout of $1 billion by mine owner Kerr McGee, the corporate contaminator exposed by the documentary, full cleanup is impossible and nothing can compensate for what has been permanently lost. But perhaps the biggest surprise of the festival, at least for me, came with the film Uranium Derby by Brittany Prater. It told the story of Manhattan Project activities and improper radioactive waste disposal in Ames, Iowa. Yes, Ames, Iowa. Parallels abound between what happened in Ames and the problems and deceptions in North St. Louis, which also struggles with the legacy of World War II nuclear weapons waste. Uranium Derby follows the director, a local resident, as she unravels the story and pushes for cleanup of a children's athletic park built directly atop the worst of this radioactive nuclear weapons waste. Brittany Prater won the festival's Young Director Award for this, her first feature, and we will be talking with her for a future nuclear hot seat. Later that Saturday, the films focused on the South Pacific, starting with Anointed, a powerful video poem about the legacy of U.S. atomic bomb tests on the Marshall Islands and the Runit Dome nuclear waste site in Eniwetok Atoll. 
It features co-director, poet, and activist Kathy Jetnil Kildner. Here, heard in a brief excerpt from the film. How shall we remember you? You were a whole island once. You were breadfruit trees, heavy with green globes of fruit, whispering promises of massive canoes. Crabs dusted with white sand scuttled through pandanus roots. Beneath looming coconut trees, beds of watermelons slept still, swollen with juice. And you were protected by powerful Eloj, chiefs burst from women who could swim pregnant for miles beneath a full moon. Then you became testing ground. Nine nuclear weapons consumed you, one by one by one, engulfed in an inferno of blazing heat. You became crater, an empty belly. Plutonium ground into a concrete slurry filled your hollow caverns. You became two. You became concrete shell. You became solidified history, immovable, unforgettable. You were a whole island once. Who remembers you beyond your death? The film is anointed, and we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 390. The final films included Greetings from Mururoa, a French film by director Larbi Benchiha, it focused on France's atomic bomb tests in the South Pacific at the Mururoa Atoll, including the stories of surviving atomic test veterans who unknowingly irradiated themselves and their families. After the film screened, a Marshall Islands atomic cleanup participant, Paul Griego, addressed the audience. Two of the islands we vaporized in the nuclear testing, and of those islands, only three of them are currently inhabited or inhabitable. Then with that, to be inhabited today, they're having food subsidies by the United States and they're not able to grow their own agriculture or eat the fish and seafood that they've always been dependent upon. And then there's another group of islands, uh, 23, there's a total of 67 islands, 23 that are called marine wildlife refuge. <laughs> what, a, what a nice word for quarantined. And when we say quarantined, I mean forever quarantined. The island that we built, the massive concrete containment dome, contains 110,000 cubic yards of high-level nuclear waste. It's built in a nuclear blast crater. That island it was the site of 17 atmospheric nuclear bomb tests. It's only 97 acres. That's the size of the island. And it, that island, at least they admit, is under permanent quarantine. Although very remote, there's no fence, there aren't any signs, there's not really any way of knowing what this massive concrete dome is doing in the middle of the Pacific Ocean unless unless you know about it in advance. I can really identify with the, with the film Greetings from Moriroa because the French atomic veterans are facing 
much of the same maladies and challenges and plight that the atomic cleanup veterans have, and I'm, I'm being one of them. There were 8,300 of the cleanup veterans. Today, there's less than 500 survivors. And we make up a small group, and uh, today, the U.S. government still does not recognize us as atomic veterans. And they don't recognize the, the consequences, the personal cost, and uh, the suffering that so many of the, the, the veterans did. I was a civilian, but I was one of very few civilians. I was there as a soil sampling. I went to 18 of the different islands collecting soil samples. I didn't have any radiation protection gear whatsoever. All I was wearing was a pair of shorts, had a t-shirt, but I used that as a dust mask and, and a towel. And I would literally be digging in nuclear fallout, uh, collecting soil samples unknowingly on these islands that the Atomic Energy Commission had long before declared as the most contaminated place on Earth. Today, uh, the indigenous people are living on three of those islands, but they too are suffering from numerous maladies and, and uh, their own challenges. One of the questions that, that I get asked a lot is about the dome. And I've asked, is it leaking? And the answer is yes. That containment dome is leaking. It's been leaking since the day it was built. It was built in this coral reef island. That coral reef itself is very porous, but it had been fractured. Well, not just by the crater that we put the waste in, but fractured by, by 17 nuclear, atmospheric nuclear bombs. So kind of like a, a glass that's been cracked and opened. And so as the tide would roll in and the tide would roll out, it would, water would go into the stone and come back out. And it's kind of like a gigantic radioactive toilet that would flush twice a day. And that's going on today been going on for the last 40 years and it will continue to do so for maybe 150,000 years. Of course the dome won't last that long and for that matter it's beyond the geological life of, of that island. That was Paul Griego, a Marshall Islands atomic cleanup participant. And yes, we will have a full interview with him on a future episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Before the final film, I checked in with international Diné activist Leona Morgan, who attended on her way to the COP24 meetings in Poland on climate change. Leona had this to say. This is a traveling uh, film festival, and I was one of the organizers back in 2013, so I, I had a real up-close and personal experience working with Norbert and Marcia. I think it's a good opportunity for folks to see films from other countries as well as meet the directors. And it's definitely a good opportunity to encourage new filmmakers, especially here on Navajo. We have quite a few young Diné filmmakers. And actually that's why I came here today is there's a young woman named Deidre Peaches and she's interviewed me several times. I really support her work. She came out of a grassroots training program called Out of Your Backpack Media that's run by Klee Benali in Flagstaff. She's just one example, I think, of someone who has developed herself into doing this somewhat professionally. Uh, I think I could see her moving 
and advancing her art and her filmmaking to quite a professional level. So I'm here today to support her as a young person and also to connect with some of the international guests. We are in Winter Rock, Arizona, and we don't often have this wealth of experience and different cultures all together in one room. We have folks here today from Denmark, France, India. Of course, Norbert is from Germany and Marcia from Brazil. So it's really fun to talk to some of my personal friends all in one place in my homeland. That was Diné activist Leona Morgan. By the way, as I'm recording this, we have just seen a video of Leona at COP24 as part of the group of young and indigenous activists who interrupted the corporate coal mining panel and did so in a way that was articulate, forceful, and meaningful enough that it has been picked up by the New York Times. We'll work to have that video up on the website as well. And Leona's comments about young filmmaker Deirdre Peaches, who showed her film Duda Lizzo, The Legacy of Navajo Nation Uranium Mining, won the Young Indigenous Filmmaker Award for her short documentary. We spoke with the director immediately after the award ceremony to get her reaction. I had a personal ties to what uranium has done, even within my family, having my grandfather being a uranium mine worker and him suffering from pulmonary fibrosis, like just seeing him with an air tank and not being able to breathe and just realizing that a lot of stories were lost with him. And it's unfair that this industry has created those problems and have created repercussions of it. And so being a filmmaker, that was definitely an influence upon like me making films and definitely a reason why I made this film, Dota uh, Thetso. What does it mean to you to have won the Best Native Filmmaker Award here at the Uranium Film Festival? I'm really appreciative that the festival came out here to Winter Rock and that there's recognition for Indigenous people telling their stories because we're at the front lines of a lot of extractive industry. And by having this award, I have a microphone right now and and that there's at least people like looking and seeing that Native people can make their own content and that their stories and is very important. So I appreciate that. That was the winner of the Young Indigenous Filmmaker Award, Deirdre Peaches. From Window Rock, the festival moved on to showings in Flagstaff, Arizona, Albuquerque, Grants, and Santa Fe, New Mexico, and then back to Tucson, Arizona. Before they left, I caught up with Festival Executive Director Norbert Suchenek to ask about where this globetrotting festival is headed after its tour of the American Southwest. Norbert, the International Uranium Film Festival was here in Window Rock in 2013. Now it's five years later and you've come back. Why this return? Uh, we always wanted to return to Window Rock. In fact, I think we could have a Uranium Film Festival every year in Window Rock because it's uh, not only the capital of the Navajo Nation, it's also the capital of abandoned uranium mines. And we have to show those films every year, I guess for many, many years. 
What's next in terms of the next place on the planet that you're going to be showing your films? We have plans to go to Scotland next year and plans to go to Portugal to a place called Urgerissa where there is one of the oldest uranium mines in the world. And of course, we should not forget Three Mile Island. So 40 years Three Mile Island, that should be well, important enough to bring the festival again to the United States and maybe to Harrisburg. And of course we have to get you back to Hollywood. Of course. <laughs> we dream of Hollywood. So does everybody else on the planet. They should only know the reality. <laughs> that was Norbert Suchenek, the indomitable executive director of the International Uranium Film Festival. I will have links to as many films and websites as are available up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 390. Because of time constraints, I'm not able to share with you all of the festival events. Films and interviews with some of the people I recorded could not be fit into this program, but trust that I'll incorporate as much as I can in future episodes including a planned episode on Indigenous issues. My thanks and gratitude, Norbert and Festival Director Marcia Gomez de Oliveira, Anna Rondon, who is Executive Director of the New Mexico Social Justice and Equity Institute, Susan Gordon of the Multicultural Alliance for a Safe Environment, and all of you who helped support me so I could attend and bring you this special coverage of the International Uranium Film Festival in Window Rock, Arizona. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, December 11, 2018. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact me with their information or have them contact us by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email. Again, the address is info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2018, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly, verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as possible, take a moment and send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. If you go to the website, you'll be able to figure out how to do it. In the spirit of the film festival and the people we met at Window Rock, going out with another song from Navajo singer Radmila Cody. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, that as representatives of life on this planet, we are all related, and there is no planet B. That's it. You have had your nuclear wake-up call, so don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Hey, hey.